Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things. Uh, Often those things are short stories, sometimes they're books. About every other episode, they're a comic. Uh, This week we read a short story, and then we'll talk about some other stuff afterwards. But I think we'll start off with a discussion of The Wolves of Brooklyn by Catherine M. Valenti, which I believe was per- first published in Fantasy Magazine. Yep, in 2016, the December issue. 2016, really? I thought it was way earlier than that. That's what it said when I looked it up. I thought it was like 2011, but I, I mean, I guess 2016 can't possibly have been two years ago. I feel like I read that so long ago. I mean, this doesn't matter. This is like pure bookkeeping stuff. But whatever. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me check real fast. Well, anyway, let me check on that. But I did, I read the story and I also listened to the audio version of it, which I guess is taken from their fantasy podcast. Yeah, they, they do podcast versions of a lot of the stories. I mean, it's the, kind of the same people that are behind like Lightspeed who do, who do you know, a similar podcast for all of their their stuff so i guess to uh summarize the story basically set in brooklyn where it has not stopped snowing for a while and these mysterious otherworldly large white wolves have been showing up and the actual content of the story is a group of they seem to be about like 20 somethings in brooklyn who meet in a bar or a coffee shop, and basically go around the table taking turns telling stories about their encounters and interactions with the wolves. That's basically the whole the whole gist of it. We, you know, one guy, one, one character runs with one of the wolves, one character sees a wolf crawl out of the ground, one character gets licked by a wolf, and one character kills and eats a wolf. It definitely has sort of a, you're right, it is the July 2011 issue, issue 52. That makes sense. It's confusing on the website because the story is in one block, and then they're advertising for some reason an issue from December 2016. Weird. But then you have they to- They might have sc- reprinted it. You'd have to scroll all the way to the bottom to get the link to the issue that, so that's kind of confusing. Yes. It's also confusing as why someone would pick now, of all times, to start mowing their lawn or running a weed whacker nearby. If you can hear that on the recording, I apologize uh, for the unscrupulous acts of our neighbors. This story sort of has like a fairy tale feel of it. It also sort of has this sort of feel of this like... Um, it's more like a fairy tale to me because it sort of has this oral tradition that's written into the story. All this event happens and it's kind of like a cataclysmic event that happens almost like Brooklyn is like a village and these wolves come to the village and the people, the villagers who are the people who live in Brooklyn are affected by these wolves. And the main bulk of the story is people gathering to talk about their experiences with the wolves. And it's almost to me like, it's kind of like one of those like sort of pivotal like historical events that are happening almost like 9-11 that happens while you're 
alive and it becomes a sort of galvanizing event that brings a certain generation together. And then it's kind of like a lot of the conversation is where were you when the wolves first came? And I think that was sort of interesting because it sort of takes like an urban type of fairy tale and sets it in a millennial generation, which is kind of interesting. I agree, except I think it's bullshit. To me, this is a story about scenes. Like, you know, cultural movements. And it's specifically about the way in which scenes don't actually exist. Or only exist in the stories that members of those scenes tell each other. The wolves aren't real. It's all bullshit. That when the... Somebody comes to Brooklyn to try and photograph the wolves. The wolves don't show up because there are no wolves. These, they're all lying to each other. And the stories are structured like a group of people lying and trying to one-up each other. The first person is like, oh, I ran with the wolf. The next person is like, oh, I had this intimate connection with the wolf. And the next person's like, yeah, well, I saw where they came from. And then it finally escalates to somebody being like, I fucking killed them and I ate them. And I'm the master of the wolves. And I have dominance over the wolves. But the wolves aren't really real in the same way that, like, your music scene isn't really real. But in telling yourself stories about it and inflating its importance, you make it important. Because at the end of the day, all it is is a bunch of people standing around wearing kind of similar clothes, playing kind of similar music. And it doesn't really mean anything except for the meaning that you put on it later. I mean, this is... And I think what you also see, like... This is an attempt for, for these Brooklynites to create a scene and a movement and a moment that can't be co-opted because the wolves can't and won't exist outside of Brooklyn. Well, I mean, that could be true because in my opinion, each person's experience, their story, and their interactions with the wolves is personal to them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the wolves wouldn't cross the borders, but in my mind, I saw it almost like a fantastical or magical or supernatural story where that was one of the restrictions that it was a special event that was only happening in Brooklyn. But I didn't see it in the way that the wolves did not exist. In my mind, they did exist in that Brooklyn and they were there for some unknown reason. Kind of. I mean, I think there's, there's ways to read it where the wolves exist. It's definitely, this, it seems like, this story is sort of, like, lightly apocalyptic. It seems like the wolves are heralding something, like, established Western American civilization is breaking down in Brooklyn because of some kind of outside force uh, that has just decided, like, oh, you know, this isn't a, a city anymore. There, It's just always going to be snowing and there will be apex predators around. Predator and humans have sort of been re-entered back into the food chain now because the wolves apparently eat people. But again, like everything else in the story, we only hear about it through people telling stories about it. We never, we as the reader never encounter the wolves at any point. We only have what the narrator is willing to tell us and what the narrator's, what the narrator is willing to tell us about what her friends told her. Yeah, I, I saw it almost as like a shared experience, like a cultural hallucination hallucination i did think about something which probably is more attuned to what you were saying it kind of was like a comment to me about a disenfranchised generation 
Mm-hmm. And that made me think about like maybe it's a comment on society and the millennial experience and how they're sort of culturally they're sort of separate, but they're united amongst themselves. And it made me think a lot about the lost generation and that whole like, you know, they're kind of like they're like culture, like instead of being like lost because of the reflection of a war, they're mostly culturally lost because dealing like being like digitally native has made that have has given them an experience that is different from the generations before them and the millennial generation is like a creative generation there's lots of writing and art and crafting and making that's going on which kind of separates it almost like a village like they talk about she talks about in the story towards the end where they sort of build this post-wolf economy where they, you know, like Brooklyn is isolated and there's a whole culture of people who are raising chickens and being beekeepers. And she talks about knitting businesses and, you know, this sort of cultural um, meeting place, which is the coffee shop, which is the bar, which kind of makes it like these millennials are separate from the rest of society because of some kind of cultural breakdown between older generations and themselves. Yeah, I agree. But I also think that what the story is trying to tell us is that that's bullshit. That, like, these differences between gener... Like, the creativity and resourcefulness of the millennials, that is the wolf. Like, it is a thing doesn't really exist, or it's not that much different than any other generation. And there's really... But not that much of a difference between Brooklyn and any other place, but we tell ourselves these stories about it over and over again until they might as well be real. If we keep repeating that there's wolves in Brooklyn and that Brooklyn's special because it has the wolves enough, then Brooklyn becomes special. And if we keep repeating that millennials are more creative and accepting and tolerant than the older generations, which we know like statistically they're not, then it becomes real over time because the story is important. And, like, we see, like, an attempt, I think, in this, this in the Wolves of Brooklyn to create a world where stories are even more important. Because she talks about how, like, the central recreational activity that people do in Brooklyn now is they meet together and they tell stories about the wolves. And they, like, the story becomes the most important thing and the most real. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. I also saw, I mean, to sort of push this sort of fairy tale situation, each of the characters who tell a story is almost like a character in a fairy tale. Anna is very clearly supposed to be a comment on Red Riding Hood. She wears the red cape. She takes her bow and arrow. She's sort of an empowered, almost like the role of doll, like Red Riding Hood, where she goes out and she actually hunts these wolves. I think it's interesting that her recreational skills that her parents gave her as a way to entertain her as a child become survival skills. You know, like going to summer camp and learning how to shoot a bow and arrow. She's now able to hunt these wolves, which I think is interesting. So it's almost like she has this skill set, this leisurely skill set that now becomes part of the post-wolf economy. Now she hunts these wolves and shares the food and and products that she makes from the wolves yeah i want to talk about um i believe the character's name is ruben 
the guy who breaks the rules in the story. Right. She, this, it is framed like the way that he's breaking the rule is he's getting upset. But he actually does a couple of different things besides get upset that the other people don't do. One, he doesn't escalate. His story isn't more dramatic or interesting than the previous story. It's just a wolf followed him. It's pretty much a less dramatic version of the first story. And he gets meta, and he questions the existence of the wolves. He says they're either physical or metaphysical. Either they're really wolves or they're not. And he he's the one person who breaks from the cycle. And I think that's sort of the key into my um, suggestion, my, my interpretation that the wolves aren't real. That this is like a game that everyone is playing and a sort of shared mythology that they're crafting. Because... The one guy who tries to question is the guy who is wrong. But the group decides is wrong and is doing the thing wrong. Well, I think that's because they want the wolves there, even Mm -hmm. though they're slightly afraid of the wolves, because the wolves make them special. I mean, they talk about when Hollywood's going to make a movie about them, you know, so they're kind of... And then they talk about, like, people coming to try to see the wolves. I think that's kind of like this sort of concept of, like, you know, there's a special thing happening and it's in Brooklyn. I also think another interpretation is that they made the wolves real. That a woman was murdered in Brooklyn and the Brooklynites were in, because they had built this cozy, hipster, millennial, beekeeping, hand-knit sock community, they were incapable of reconciling that reality. So they created this myth of the wolf to explain in the same way that every mythology is created to explain a part of the world that you don't understand, they created the wolves to explain the death of Yelena, and then that narrative came to dominate their lives. I think that's true. I mean, we saw that in a lot of Grimm's fairy tales when we read them. Mm-hmm. I think we also saw that in, uh, what was it, Jeff Vandermeer in the... The Third Bear? The Third Bear. It's the same thing. It's like, like that's a common device that's used in fairy tales, this sort of mythological creature to justify their own, because then it allows them to work themselves up in a frenzy and become, you know, like a, almost like a mob. I mean, that lynch mob that's always chasing the monster, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. But they essentially turn themselves into the monster. If Yelena was just murdered by a person in Brooklyn, presumably a person who lives in Brooklyn, and then they create the wolves to explain that, then they are the wolves. Well, I think that's true because the wolves, I mean, you see it, especially with Anna, the interacting with the wolves allows them to indulge their base instincts so now anna herself is a predator she was a passive Mm -hmm. character and now she's an aggressive character and the wolf she wouldn't have been that way if she didn't feel compelled to chase these wolves and then others interactions with the wolves i think one of them i guess he's a chef at some point he his interaction is he just literally spends the entire day sitting with the wolf and he has like a sort of almost like a religious experience being with the wolves Mm -hmm. and then other people see the wolves as an inconvenience the girl who only wanted to get her coffee and her cookie was very inconvenienced and put out by the fact that the wolf showed up and you know frightened her but i think it's like a way for them like you said it's a device for them to come together in these sort of meetings to talk to one up to kind of get this sort of oral history this gossip chain going where they're like perpetuating this sort of history that they're creating about these wolves 
I don't know if the wolves exist or not. I don't know if it's supposed to be set in the future. I don't think it's, it really it's, matters if the wolves exist or not. if you know something happened. You know, climate change. Because she does mention that once the wolves come, it keeps snowing, and then their burrow is even more isolated than before because they can't leave Brooklyn, and that's why they end up. And that's why, in my mind, it's almost like a village because. Now they're snowed in and they're isolated and they have to create their own community, which is what they end up doing at the end. I don't know. I thought it was interesting, though. Yeah, no. I mean, I think the story is interesting. I'm a big fan of this story. I think it's really interesting that it's a lot different from her novels. I don't think it's it's that. It's a lot different from her most recent stuff, like Space Opera and the Mass Effect book that she wrote. But I think there's a, a this sort of like examination of storytelling and mythology and fairy tales is in a lot of her other stuff. Like if you read Deathless, like that's a whole story about the the fairy tale of Koshche the Deathless, like repurposed and and like recontextualized in a you know in modern history, but still. I think the only thing that I have read from her was her novel Pound Set, which was published in 2009. Mm-hmm. Did you read that one? Yeah, but even that's like, that's another story about like this fantastical thing that creates this community and this connection between a few people and a sort of exploring what what this thing that connects them means to the different people. And there's another sort of similar ambiguity where I think it's entirely possible to read Palimpsest and to come away thinking that the city does not exist. What did you think of Space Opera? That was her newest novel published in 2018. I know you read that. I have it on my list to read, but I haven't gotten to it. Uh, I like Space Opera a lot. It's very fun. A lot of people were drawing comparisons between it and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I think is pretty... Accurate. It does that sort of similar trick of like the narrator exists outside of humanity and is kind of like explaining things that we already know about humanity to us in a and that provides like an in to satirize those things. And you know, it's got some interesting stuff to say about like cultures interacting and how and why we decide when people get to be people. Do you think she's more, I guess she kind of walks that line between fantasy and science fiction. Does space opera have any... It's just, no, it's, it's just a science fiction story. Science fiction. I mean, it's a it's very loose science fiction story. It's not like hard sci-fi. But I mean, I, lots of writers, I think more writers than people realize, you know, switch around between those different genres and have been for like ever. Like if you go back... And read Michael Moorcock, you know, there's fantasy and there's sci-fi, and Fritz Lieber did the same thing, and George R. R. Martin's written science fiction stories. Yeah, I think in the overall, I mean, that's one of the things that George R. R. Martin writes about when, like, if you read Dream Songs, his short stories, he talks about his writing process, and he talks about how excited he is about the blending of genres, and one of them he's especially interested in is blending fantasy with sci-fi. I mean, he goes through periods where he specifically writes, like, in one narrow type of genre. But now other people are starting to do that, and he's starting to get excited about that. Yeah. No, I think that's cool. I mean, I think we've talked about that. There was a period for a long time, I think, where the boundaries between those two genres were 
a lot softer than they became. And I think it's good now they're they're sort of breaking down and people that write science fiction can write fantasy and that we can get science fiction that has some more fantastical elements. Or what I think is even more interesting is fantasy that applies to its setting the same kind of like analytic eye and sort of like systemic analysis <laughs> that you get in science fiction. I think that's part of why Game of Thrones works so well is it has a very, or Song of Fire and Ice, I guess, more specifically, has a very sort of an almost science fiction writer's eye towards the fantasy. Everything is treated with a lot of weight and like logic for the most part. Well, I think a lot of science fiction and fantasy also has a lot of sort of stylistic elements in common. Like both of them are very, world building is very important to both of those genres. Yes. And also sort of character and lineage is very important, especially when you have, like, if you go like a Werner Vinge, like the, you know, his like, his Deepness in the Sky series, I don't know what it's called. I'm currently reading it now, but I don't know what the whole trilogy is called. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean. Um, no, it's not Known Space. Zones of Thought. Zones of Thought. Known Space is Larry Niven. His world, these sort of slow and fast zones that he creates are very important to the whole genre of his series. But also because it takes place over thousands and thousands of years, that sort of cultural lineage of the different factions that are having these battles in space and also the, even the characters, because the characters can go like into like hibernation and then come back. So like having that lineage, which is often important in fantasy, you know, they all, George R. R. Martin does it all the time. He talks about like the lineage of the Targaryens and how important that is. It's the same thing in science fiction. If you're reading an epic science fiction or even science fiction slash fantasy series, something like Discworld, knowing the whole overarching storyline and knowing the, the characters is very important. I mean, yeah. I mean, well, if you look at uh, Fire Upon the Deep, right? That's the name of the book, right? That's the first one. That's the first one. Yeah. That book's structured like a fantasy. That is a fantasy novel. That takes place in a science fiction universe, but it's got the evil overlord, there's a quest to get to a specific area, they go through all the same sort of trials and tribulations, a a member of the Fellowship betrays the Fellowship, like, there's literally castles and shit by the end, like, it's, it's a fantasy novel, it just happens to take place in space, and the characters happen to be in a spaceship and not like a boat or on horses or something. But that's the same thing. Now, I'm reading A Deepness in the Sky, which is the second one, which he also won a Hugo Award for. It takes place like 10,000 years in the future, and then it's like, oh, do you remember that guy, Fam, who was in the first... He, like, shows up, because he's been, like, in hyperspace hibernation for all this long period of time, and you're like, okay, this is a really epic story, like like a fantasy series, that you have to know everything. You know, I was thinking a lot about when I was reading this Catherine Valente. She reminded me a lot of Ursula Le Guin. Where she does a mashup of fantasy and science fiction, which I thought was really interesting. So I thought she kind of like, she she must have been influenced by her career. Yeah, I think like, part of the things I like about Ursula Le Guin, like if you look at um, The Left Hand of Darkness, that is a science fiction novel. It's about a character from space coming down to a planet. There's a scientific explanation for everything. 
but there is this very like fantasy element of like kings and lineage like you said and this exploration of this culture that's incredibly old like you know, it, it could easily have been a story about a guy discovering the snow elves and being caught up in their like various courtly ambitions and their weird culture but you know it's not it's in space well, I was just th- thinking about the the Bursagian, Bur- Burkosian? Burkosian saga. That's another good example of blending science fiction and fantasy. And that's almost like Game of Thrones in space because there's this epic family saga that's going on. And I think, what, it's now up to maybe about... 15 plus books i think it's i think it is exactly 16 i might be wrong and when she writes the book she writes they're not they're almost like george r R. martin books they're not linear there's branches that go off to different families go into future into the past so there's it's kind of like this this whole world where there's all these different bubbles of stories related to one thing which happens to be this space family and you know the adventures of the children that are in that family which is very interesting yeah i mean and lots of like the, the big boy that we've been pussyfooting around is dune which is like one of the m- most influential science fiction novels of all time which is literally a story about a renegade prince who's being hunted by his family's rival house who becomes a champion of a downtrodden people and has like actual magic powers basically yeah, I think that's a perfect example. This I mean, desert King Arthur in space. Well, that's what George R. R. Martin said, that he was inspired by British history when he started writing Game of Thrones. And you talk about that a lot. Yeah, about I think, yeah, I think it's very Tyrion's clear. Tyrion's character being based on... Richard III. Richard III. I think that's that's true. Yeah. Okay, I mean, do we want to move on to... So the other thing we were going to do in this episode was sort of talk about the best stuff we've read this year. This is our going to be our last episode of the year, uh, provided everything goes according to plan. So do you want to get into our top five 2018 reads, or do you want to hear more about this book that I read, which I'm trying to shoehorn into at least one episode, for, but I can't really find any thematic way to push it in there well let's talk about this book and then we'll get into to our best reads what is this book it's not citing again is it <laughs> nope it's called hope never dies oh Obama yeah Biden mystery written by andrew schaefer and was published in 2018 and it's well andrew schaefer is a writer he's a writer and he's a um professor of creative writing And he writes these sort of parody books. And then this book is supposed to be a parody of like this sort of almost like Sherlock Holmes, Watson, this um, duo mystery solving adventure, this sort of buddy comedy kind of mystery. So it's sort of like a satire or I don't know if it's more of a satire or it's a parody. It's a comedy. There's like lots of elements going on. But it was interesting because it was supposed to be a joke and then it became this sort of culturally like phenomenon for like the summer everybody was talking about this book and the new york times reviewed it the washington post it had gotten like serious in the literary community attention which usually doesn't happen for a writer like andrew schaefer because he usually writes books like i think it was one of his books is the 50 shades of earl gray a parody of 
Fifty Shades of Grey that's based in, you know, a tea shop. So I think he writes his kind of culturally, he's almost like the Weird Al of, like, writing. Like, he writes these parodies that are based on cultural um, phenomena. Is it good? I thought it was very good. Like, actually good or ironically good? I thought it was ironically good. So the plot point is it takes place after Obama and Biden retire. And Biden, who was the vice president, before that he was a spy and now he's retired from being a president and retired vice president and retired from being a spy. And Obama is a secret agent. And that's pretty much it. So the story what? opens up yes. But he's all he was also the president? He was also the president. And now he's retired from being the president, but he's still keeping up his good deeds by being this secret agent that helps people. Okay. So Biden Obviously, this is much more tongue-in-cheek than the president is missing. Yes. Oh, that was 100% deadly serious that they yeah. did that. So, Biden, um, Biden is retired, and he's kind of like, and his wife is still working. She's a doctor, so she's still working, and he's sort of putzing around the house. He doesn't know what to do with himself, and he's kind of upset because he and Obama had this great friendship, and they spent so much time together, and then after they're no longer in the Oval Office, Obama just abandons him, he thinks. And he gets sort of upset. He's kind of, you know, he's kind of at sorts because he doesn't know what to do with himself. Biden is obsessed with trains. This is like him in real life, and it's also in this story. He's obsessed with trains? Yes, especially like the trains in Delaware because he used to take the train to Washington. Oh, yeah, that was like a big thing, Amtrak. Yes, so the plot point is one of the Amtrak conductors is dies. And it points to that he was using drugs or was a drug dealer. Okay. So Biden starts looking into this because he doesn't believe this to be true. And he runs afoul of these thugs. And then Obama has to come and help him because Obama gets information from the Secret Service that says that Biden is in trouble. And so they decide that they're going to both solve the mystery of what happened to this murdered Amtrak conductor. What? The book is about Obama and Biden trying to solve the murder of an Amtrak conductor? Yes. Okay. Does it become like a broader conspiracy or is it just about this one guy who drives a train? Possibly high on cocaine. It's kind of like a cozy mystery. Okay. So So it's low stakes. Yeah, low stakes. And the whole gist of it is this sort of relationship between Obama and Joe Biden. But I like that he took, like, parts of personality of Obama and Biden and puts them together. So, like, Biden has a muscle car because he loves muscle cars. And then they have to go undercover. So they get go undercover. And Barack Obama wears a tap-out shirt and cargo shorts. What? And Joe wears a hoodie and skate shorts because they go to, like, this beach area and they have to get undercover. And then Obama takes Joe Biden to a barbecue place and, you know, it's too spicy for him. And, you know, there's all these, like, he makes this joke about how Joe Biden loves honey mustard flavor. So I guess, like, it's kind of like a play on their their relationship as well as them trying to solve this mystery. But it's supposed to be like a a lethal weapon thing? Yes. But, like, with Biden as the Danny Glover character? I think so, yeah. And then, of course, like... You know, Obama has to actually fight people because he's younger and in better shape. And there's lots of jokes about Joe Biden being old and 
and not being able Does to... Does anybody that they're fighting go, you're Obama? Why are you punching me? You're Obama? Or do they just like, oh, whatever. They just accept that. But one of my favorite parts where it's also weird because Joe Biden says a lot of like adoring things about Obama. And at one point he says, Obama, when he, they stay at a hotel because they're undercover and they're hiding out. So they have to hide from the secret service. How do they go undercover? They're the most famous <laughs> dudes in the world. But what he's, but Joe Biden says when he sees Obama come out of the shower with no shirt and he says, he says exactly, he gives new meaning to the term dad bod, which is very strange. What? So there's like a fight on a train and and Biden has to fight. Does Biden ever say he's getting too old for this shit? Yes, he does. He does. And then when he comes back and he's all damaged, his wife was like, what are you up to? And he was like, I had lunch with Barack. Like, super cool. But it was funny because the cover is like... It's like them in a car, right? Yeah. But I was laughing because on Goodreads, the author gave his own review, and his review of his own book was just a, a gif of like Joe Biden, like wearing his Top Gun outfit, sitting in his like muscle car. And so then it was like, huh? Well, like, I mean, okay, I understand it to a certain extent. I really do, because you know, it's everything sucks right now. And like, it was like, it's very easy to imagine that things were a lot better when Obama was president and because Obama was president, which is not a sentiment I necessarily agree with. Um, and so I can see like this being weirdly comforting to people to be like, even though he's not around, like Obama still has my back. He's going to fight yeah. criminals for me with, uh, with Joe Biden and they're still friends. Like it's, it's like a weird, like it's. Like a bedtime story for people that watched The West Wing. Well, you know what I think? I, it's kind of like, it's like you said, it's fan fiction and it's a comfort, but it doesn't necessarily deal at all with the new administration. It's kind of it, like it at one be. point, Barack just says like, oh, this world is going to shit and I'm just doing what I can to keep it together. You know, so he's like a super action hero. I wonder like... I would be really interested to talk to the dude that wrote this because there's a lot of things I wonder about the writing process. Like, how hard was the temptation to make, like, to make this Obama and Biden versus the Russians and they delegitimize the Trump presidency by the end? Like, that's, like, in a way I admire his restraint as to not fall so far into, like, that kind of an escapist fantasy where you're, you're like all the problems at post Obama are recontextualized into this criminal conspiracy that he and Joe Biden can solve by doing one liners and jumping through panes of glass. But I think it was mostly supposed to be about Biden and his love. I mean, he's kind of like this quirky, weird cultural, you know, element. You know, he loves trains and he loves macho, muscle cars and he's kind of like, he says it like, he, you know, it is and he's kind of down to earth. So it's kind of like about him being like, what is his retirement going to be like? Which is kind of like, I think it's pretty funny that he sort of makes him seem like he's this out of sorts retired guy who doesn't know what to do with his time. And then his friend shows up and they just have this nutty adventure. But I, I mean, I think it's fun. It's, it's, I, re, I thought it was surprise. I mean, the detective component of it is very basic. The mystery is very basic. 
the bad guys end up being like a drug dealers and gang members. The stakes aren't very high. It's kind. It, it is like a cozy mystery. It's almost like reading like a crafting theme mystery, except it has Barack Obama and Joe Biden in it. Um. Yeah, it's very strange that that exists, but it almost feels like the kind of thing that would have happened in, like, the 1800s. Like, you would read, like, an article on Atlas Obscura that was like, did you know that in the 1800s people wrote weird stories about the president and sold them for a quarter on the, on the street? Like, That's exactly what this is. I mean, I, I, it's really funny. But apparently he's making a sequel. He is. Of course he is. But I think he seemed to be more surprised by the success of this because he is sort of like, uh, I mean, he's a good writer. There's there's no continuity problems. The dialogue is timely. The pace of the story. It's just the plot is kind of absurd. Is it better than The President is Missing? I think it's different because The President is Missing is 100% serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you And know. that's like a middle-aged man stroke fest. We talked about this endlessly. This is almost like he he his job is to write these sort of parodies of like he has a book that's called The Great Catsby, which yes. is like cats, you know. So I mean, his whole deal is he writes these parodies. This became a huge success because I think it hit exactly at the right time. And it was really hilarious. I mean, the cover itself sells it. Like this picture of them in this muscle car. And Obama's in the suit and he's pointing. And Joe Biden's in his muscle car with his, like, aviator glasses driving. I mean, it's... I mean, it's like... It must have been 100%. There's like that one picture, which is probably the gift that he posted, of... Biden with the aviators, which I assume is a hundred percent of the, the genesis point for this entire story. Yeah, and I think that's what his deal is. He makes these sort of parody. They're kind of like the books, like that you would buy, like as a joke for like someone for Christmas. Like, oh, you you're interested in politics? Here's a book about Obama and Biden solving a mystery. Yeah, I mean, we kind of saw the same thing happen though with Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, right? Like, that was a similar, like, one-off joke thing that you're supposed to pick up on your way to the counter at the bookstore to give your friend as a joke gift because they like Jane Austen. And it became this weird phenomenon for a while, to the point where they eventually made a movie out of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I don't know if we'll see a Hope Never Dies movie. But I think it is a, a, a similar phenomenon. Uh, which a president and vice president would you most like to read a, a buddy cop team up mystery story about? Because my answer is probably going to be Calvin Coolidge and Warren G. Harding. That's a good Because then one. you could call it cool and hard. <laughs> <laughs> Get writing. I, I don't know. I never really thought about it, but this made me think a lot about the whole, um, do you remember that phase, like David Foster Wallace went through that phase where he wrote a lot about Lyndon Johnson? Yeah. And it made me think about, like, this sort of culture of writing about presidential things and how some, like, on the spectrum of extremely serious to, like, comedic to, like, these sort of, you know, these all these, like, Trump books that are coming out where they're just sort of, all of them are stretching as much as they can to sort of make Trump look like this heroic figure. Yeah, that's shit's weird. I mean, I think the thing is, like, the president is... This is going to sound so, like... This seems like a pointless thing to say because it's so obvious, but, like, the president is a compelling character. It's... 
a dude for a, who for a while gets to be basically the most important person on earth. And like a lot of times because, you know, they're chosen by our incredibly stupid political system, a lot of times they end up being these sort of absurd figures. And I think like with David Foster Wallace and Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson is a ridiculous figure. Like this, we, this like dude who was constantly talking about his giant schlong and like, was like crass and rude and there's like a recording of him complaining to a pants company that the seam on their pants scrapes his bunghole but then he was also like the most important dude in the world and like there are all these historical moments that he's tied to despite like being essentially larry the cable guy <laughs> like i think he was accidentally made the most important. well yeah that's the I thing mean, that makes him even more compelling is like this incredible you know one of the the biggest psychic traumas in american history the end result is that like one of the most ridiculous dudes ever becomes has to become the president right but i think Thinking about my favorite presidential literature, I have to say that Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, is still my favorite presidential fiction. This is a close second. This is pretty great. I mean, it's a fluffy read, but it's... it's I, you don't groan as much because you know it's tongue-in-cheek. When you're reading The President is Misting, you're kind of like, ugh. I think my favorite piece... This is going to be... It's kind of weird. But I think my favorite piece of presidential fiction, or fiction that uses the president as a central character, is uh, Futurama. Yeah. With the way that they portray the, like, re-ascendant Nixon in a head as this, like, maniacal parody of, like, everything we've come to imagine Nixon as and more over the years. To the point where he's got, like, a headless Frankenstein Spiro Agnew carrying him around. And, like, he's just, like, this outrageously cartoonish villain. And in a way, Futurama's portrayal of Nixon sort of predicts Trump. Because Nixon succeeds in Futurama for a lot of the same reasons that Trump became the president in real life. Because Futurama's Nixon is, like, this outrageously, audaciously corrupt figure. But, like, his... He's so, like, strangely charismatic, and he appeals to so much of, like, the baseness of people that they end up electing him, even though he's obviously the wrong choice. Oh, that's, that, yeah, that, that's true. Also, my other, also in Futurama, related to the president, one of my favorite sight gags in that is in the episode where they go back in time and Truman arrives at Area 51 by smashing his way out of a wooden crate like he's, like, an evil robot. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite part of this book, Hope Never Dies is there's this whole, you know, there's all these action sequences. There's a car chase. There's a shootout. There's a confrontation with all these drug dealers. They have to go undercover. They have to hide out in a seedy motel. You know, there's all this kind of stuff going on. And then at the end, when when Biden shows back home and he's all beat up and his clothes are all messed up and he has been gone for two days and Joe's like, where have you been, Joe? And Joe's just says, oh, I had a sleepover at Obama's. And then his wife is just like, okay, like two grown men have sleepovers, two former high level, you know, political figures have sleepovers together yeah. and then just go home after solving a train related drug deal or mystery. I, th I think Biden is a really interesting cultural figure and in, because like he has so much 
there are so many versions of Biden that exist in pop culture, which seems weird because he doesn't seem like an inherently interesting person. But you have like the Biden from those Obama Biden memes where he's like this goofball friend character who's like out of his depth and like constantly screwing with people. And then you have like the onions version of Biden where he's this like chain smoking scumbag who like crashes his car through your living room and like judges a wet t-shirt contest and then there's this like this version of biden who's like um you know this sort of like sweet and heroic like colombo-y sort of character exactly and then like then there's even i think just like outside of popular culture i think you see people have this like perception of him as a person that's like largely disconnected from his actual politics. Like, a lot of people like Joe Biden, but probably couldn't really tell you anything that he did in his political career besides just, like, being a cultural figure. I think he has sort of this persona. I mean, he probably is this way. He seems honest and down-to-earth and realistic and slightly optimistic. Yeah, but he wrote the crime bill. Like, there's, like, a (laughs) tension there where it's like yes those are all true but then if you look at the shit that he actually did it's like i think it's the same thing with obama too is there's a a tension between the way people need have this need to perceive obama as this sort of savior figure which i think has been tested a lot since trump has been elected which is often at odds with a lot of the stuff he he did but then like also he clearly tried to do some positive things i think like when they make the move the movie about Obama, like, in the way that, like, JFK is the movie about John F. Kennedy, like, it's gonna be fucking wild. And it's gonna be, have to be so complicated, because he is such, by, just by the fact of being the president when he was the president, is such a complicated figure. And I think it's interesting to see these portrayals that sand off the edges and lean hard into this one aspect of the person... And, like, what that says about people and and our need to consume these things. Yeah. I mean, that should be interesting. Sorry to bring it down. I didn't want to turn my review of a essence, a murder mystery duo, comedy duo, into a political discussion but i guess there really is no way it's like impossible though because they're they're real the thing that makes it appealing is that they're real people but then you also have to reckon with the fact that they're real people and they did real things that still that did affect people and still continue to affect people and have contributed to the way things are now they were important and that's like that's why they were important enough that people were fascinated enough by them to write stories about them but then they were also important enough to like be important and to have affected things. Shit's weird. It writing is. about real people, it, writing about real people and not in fiction, especially while they're still alive, is an incredibly weird thing. I think this whole trend of putting historical figures in fiction, it's it's kind of like a, it's like a trend now. It's going on. Lots of very popular books, bestsellers use actual historical figures in them. But I think it does, like, especially something like this book, it does a lot of the heavy lifting for character development, which kind of is easier for the author. Because 
He's writing this book because we know who Obama is. We know who Joe Biden is. We know the cultural sort of stereotype of what, you know, their relationship, their sort of friendship that they had is very well documented. And it makes it easier to write a story like this. Because if this was just a story about a retired man and his best friend solving a mystery, that he would have to do a lot more character development than he has to do here. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing with a lot of these books that have historical figures. You can plop Sherlock Holmes in a mystery. Half the work is done because everybody knows the backstory of Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. So that makes it easier for you to co-opt a character and place him. It's like when we talked about the fifth heart. You know, yeah. like everybody knew who Sherlock Holmes was and his predilections. So Dan Simmons, who is a good writer, so he's not using this as a shortcut, but he, the only heavy lifting he had to do was to create the character of Henry James, which a lot of people may not know about the person Henry James, but know about his writing. Yeah, yeah. So I think it can be used as a cop-out in some ways, and it can, or it can be used to enhance a story. Depends on the writer. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, when you, when you put a historical figure in a book, you have to make a decision about what version of the historical figure is going to be in. Like, this is a separate thing from using a fictional character like Sherlock Holmes. Which, you also have to do that, too. Be like, okay, which Sherlock Holmes is this? Is this, like, the Basil Rathbone, like, ex right. supremely mannered Sherlock Holmes? Is this kind of, like, the mean, like, modern conception of Sherlock Holmes? But it's like, when you do that with a historical figure, you have to, you can never present them completely because they're a real person. And it's impossible to fully present a real person in fiction. You can try very hard, but you'll never get all the way there. I think it's even weirder when it's a person who's still alive because it's like, it's entirely possible that like tomorrow, Joe Biden could do some buck wild shit and completely invalidate this portrayal of him. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But it's I think this is sort of a cultural cash-in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, like, right at the time after Obama left office and people were sort of still basically nostalgic for the Obama administration, and they were kind of a little bit shook about the Trump situation. Probably more than a little bit. Well, yeah. But it's almost like this is an escapist yeah. story. Absolutely, it's escapist. But it's an interesting thing because it's escapism not into... A fully fictional world, but into an idealized version of the very recent past. I mean, look at on the internet recently. Joe Biden adopted a dog, and the internet they like, lost, lost it. I mean, <laughs> look, I only have room in my heart for one old white man and his adopted dog, and it's Patrick Stewart. Yes, but now what <laughs> if Patrick I wrote Stewart a mystery? What if I wrote a, a mystery where Patrick Stewart and his dog solve a mystery? Well, I would read that one. <laughs> Obviously, I'd read that one. I, you could you could probably do... I don't know how, how successful it would be, but there are people who would be all the way on board for that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Patrick Stewart's great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get too much into Patrick Stewart. No, 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 Let's no. talk about our top five to 2018 reads. So we decided to list... Five of the books that we enjoyed the most that mm -hmm. we read in 2018, not necessarily published in 2018. Can I break the format real fast before we get into the best stuff we read? Can I just very quickly make everyone mad at me by talking about the worst thing I read? Yes. Okay, so I kept track of, I, kept, I recorded every book I finished this year. So that doesn't count all the books that I started but didn't finish, 
or short stories that I read or whatever. Um, and so the worst book that I actually finished this year is Death in Venice by Thomas Mann. I absolutely hated this book. I was baffled by every step of it. To me, it was just a long stretch of Thomas Mann patting himself on the back for how good a writer he is in between segments of an old man being very creepy to a boy and then dying of tuberculosis because he's too horny to leave. See, I like Thomas Mann, but I have to say the only thing that one should read of Thomas Mann is The Magic Mail. I've never read The Magic Mountain. This is the first thing I read. Um, yeah, you should not start with Death and Venice. No. That's your, that's mistake number one. It's your little teaser for the rest of this segment. I read the best thing I read this year. And the best thing I read this year is a, a classic of, uh, I guess you would call it queer literature. Uh, and I wanted to read something else like that. And on pretty much every list of like the the, you know, the greatest classics of queer literature, like essential... LGBT reads like number two or three are always high up there was Death in Venice and it was very short so I was like let me read that and I think reading it in that context especially turned me against it because it's just like it's a book about a creep (laughs) and I I couldn't really find anything redeeming about this guy like he's just when he's not being boring he's being incredibly creepy and I, I couldn't really grasp what Thomas Mann was trying to say here, except, like, maybe just the idea that, like, you know, beauty is, like, a dangerous thing that inspires obsession, and obsession is a self-destructive impulse, and that, like, I, I think he, I think the, the obsession with the boy is supposed to be, like, a metaphor for, like, artistic obsession and drive and the way that that can destroy you but like outside of that metaphorical level it's just a deeply unpleasant story oh yeah 100 percent. that's true and a lot of it a lot of it is just omniscient third person narration telling me how good a writer this guy is that was the part that baffled me the most was like how many times you have to tell me this guy's a great writer also, all of the books you're saying that he wrote sound really fucking boring. <laughs> Thomas Mann, I'm sorry. They sound like snoozes. Well, maybe Thomas Mann is your Henry James. Maybe he is my Henry James. So, yeah. So, uh, everybody feel free to send me angry tweets and letters about how I'm wrong about Death in Venice. But I think it fucking sucks. And it's boring and it's awful. I'm trying to think of what was the worst thing I read. I have to say the worst thing that I read, and I just pulled it up on my Goodreads, is The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye by David Langer-Krantz, which is... Can we stop titling books The Girl? Right. Blankety blank blank blank? (laughs) Because that's a little overplayed. Well, he was tasked by Stieg Larsson's estate to finish the Millennium series. Okay, so it was actually part of those. Never mind. Yes. That one's, I guess, free from that. Yes. And that was just, I mean, I feel like it's time to, I mean, we're going to talk in the future about posthumous series that are finished by other writers, but that one was just the worst. He's just, he's just an awful writer. He's boring. And he sort of, he has taken a strong 
female character, a feminist empowered character that a lot of women respected and were excited to see and turned her into this sort of timid baby character <laughs> that sort of just sort of <laughs> oh, man. It's I it's unpleasant for so many reasons. Let me let me ask you a question. Because uh, the only one I read, um, what's the, the first one? Is the girl with the dragon tattoo, right? Yes. I don't even think I finished it. But I started reading that, and I don't think Steve Larson is an amazing writer. But there's something appealing about his writing. There's like a, it's very earnest, like in a sort of like excited kind of dad ish way. But uh, I think the thing that really felt like the hallmark of his writing to me, and I want to know if it's in this one, is uh, a bunch of very excited descriptions about how cool his MacBook is. Yes. Did that carry on? Did he manage to capture that element of Stieg Larsson's well, voice? Even the parts that I hated about Stieg Larsson, about his like how everything was like about Mikhail Bloomquist and his middle aged awesomeness. Yeah, well, you know, the, his male awesomeness that sort of is even diminished in this, and it just sort of becomes this sort of sad, like you know, Mission Impossible type sequel, which you know is. It's just derivative. I mean, it sounds pretentious to describe something as derivative, but that's exactly what it is. My impression I always got of those books, especially just from reading The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, was that, like, Stieg Larsson got old. Like, he used to be, like, a young and cool hotshot reporter. He got older. And then, like, one day he was in a coffee shop and he saw a cool, like, alternative indie punk girl. And then he wrote a whole book to try and create an alternate universe in which she would like him because he was self-conscious about whether or not she would like him, and it was important that this person not. It was important that this person like him so that he could retain his conception of himself as a ghoul guy. Look, I do not want you to dunk on Stieg Larsson. I'm not dunking on him for one particular reason. A lot of his books, a lot of the series, is this very tight, short kind of mystery that involves like fact checking for magazine articles. Mm-hmm. It's very slow paced. There's lots of like research being done. He's almost like the detective version of like a John Le Carre novel where it's like you talk about like how their their John Le Carre novels are about bureaucracy. Yeah, they're books are about you... library research. So mm-hmm. like if you can read a John Le Carre and not think that that is boring and plotting, then you can read a Stieg Larsson and think the same thing. I did not like it. I just didn't ever got around to finishing it. <laughs> Um, yeah, John Le Carre novels are stories about doing paperwork, and if you do the paperwork wrong, somebody somewhere that you can't see gets shocked. Well, here's the thing that I have to say. I would rather read a Dan Braille novel than read another one of these girl blank, blank, blank. That's harsh criticism. Let's get into the actually good stuff. Okay. Did you put your list in any sort of order? No, I just picked the top five that I, you know, read. Mine's not in any order except I know what my... The number one is. Like, everything else can, can kind of go in pretty much any order. Um, okay. I'm also not including stuff we specifically talked about on this podcast. Like, obviously, I really loved Chronicle of a Death Foretold and The Hellbound Heart. But, like, we already spent, like, an hour and a half discussing both of those books. So, I don't think we're, I really need to bring them up here. Uh, if you didn't read them, go read them. They're both very good. So, let's get to it. What was it? What's the number one? Oh, I don't want to go. I want to finish on the number one. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no, no. So a very good thing that I read this year uh, was All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders. I think I might have talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. It's sort of, 
it's very much a melding of science fiction and fantasy to the point where it's a book with two protagonists, one of whom is a engineer and like a scientist, and the other is a witch. And it's about their connections to each other. It's about the changing world. A lot of it is about ecological collapse. I I don't know how other people feel about literature, but I I liked this a lot because it made me deeply uncomfortable and anxious in two different ways in the kind of two different sections of the story. The book is sort of split into two halves plot-wise. One which follows these characters in middle school as they meet and grow together and then are forced apart. And then the second half follows them as adults when they meet back up uh, years having passed between their last meeting. And the first half is this very raw and tense portrayal of like childhood alienation and bullying and feeling out of place and being made to feel out of place. Both of the characters are outsiders for various reasons. And there's a sort of like delicate dance of them like connecting, but not wanting to get too close because getting too close with another outsider fully marks you as an outsider. And like these kids in middle school end up doing incredibly shitty things to each other to try and maintain this, you know, fully artificial idea of their own social standing And then the second half of the novel deals very heavily with impending ecological collapse. And that made me very anxious in a completely different way than that the first half of the novel did. Interesting. Uh, But it's, like, very smartly written. Like, she's got a very engaging writing style. The characters are both really well realized. The portrayal of their, like, relationship in all of its sort of, like, imperfections and this sort of, like, quiet... This, like, dance that people do of pulling each other close and pushing each other apart and testing the limits of how far apart you can push someone before you've pushed them all the way away is, like, really compelling and feels, like, very real in a way that potentially could also make you quite uncomfortable if it rings true to any way that your, you know, own relationships have played out in your life. And I think it does that the uh, the interplay of science fiction and fantasy very well. The, the science fiction elements are not terribly hard sci-fi elements like the very beginning of the story one of the characters makes a device that freezes time for five seconds and it is never explained how that works the consequences of having it and how you would use it are explored but the actual science of it is not terribly important we were talking about this briefly when i i i told you i was reading martha wells um all systems red which is the then she won. It's the novella that she won the Hugo Award. For. Yeah, I started reading that. I'm enjoying it a lot, but I'm only very early on into it. But one of the things that I mentioned about that that I respected a lot about her writing style is that she doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the science of what is going on. You're immediately immersed in the story into this world, and it's up to the reader to figure out how the technology works. And it seems like this this also does the same thing, which is kind of nice. Because it's almost like you're you're a character in the story. You're supposed to know what the world is and the world that's built and how the technology works. It's not like hard science fiction where every detail is explained to you. You're not getting like a Neil Stevenson where you're getting a 60-page interlude about time travel. You're just... You're just supposed to have that verisimilitude of being like, this is how it works, and I'm on board for that. Yeah, but honestly, weirdly enough, this actually did remind me a lot of Neil Stevenson. Not in the way that it, like, 
is digging very hard into the mechanics of how things work, but in the way that Neil Stevenson writes these long, complicated stories with tons of characters who weave in and out of each other's lives, and there's all these layers and elements. Like, this is a book that has a society of witches. It has, like, a eccentric millionaire that's trying to have build a portal to escape Earth. It has a, like, parliament of birds that hang out in a magic tree that may or may not be an avatar for all life on Earth. It's got, like, short-term time travel. It's got a a self-aware AI. And a lot of the story deals with, like, the effect of social media and targeted advertising. advertising. Everybody in the story, once it uh, flips ahead to their later years, has these devices that are, like, not quite iPads, but these, like, smart devices that sort of manage your life for you and push and pull you in different directions. And there's an interesting exploration of the intersection between the will of this device and the will of, like, fate as sort of, like, an arcane metaphysical concept. Interesting. It's a very weird, very complicated book that I, I highly recommend to anybody. If you can handle some of the heavier places it goes, I think... People get a lot out of this. So would you give it a trigger warning? Uh, I mean, it's not like a very specific thing, but I think if you had a very rough, like, childhood experience, it, it'll probably bring back some pretty not great memories if you can deal with because that. Because of the middle school experience? Yeah, it's not okay. like, it's not very specific. It's not like it's, like, full of, like, abuse or sexual assault. It's just, like, if you got bullied in middle school, you're gonna, this is gonna feel real to you. Well, that's good. That's good wording. One of my choices, I didn't put them in any particular order, but one of the books that I put on my list um, also deals with a, a pretty close to the future dystopic experience, and it's The Future Home of the Living God by Louise Erdre. It was published in late 2017, and it was, the, it was actually the first book I read in 2018 because I had been waiting for that book for a while to come out. Uh, I talked about this before. It's kind of like dystopic fiction done right. I mean, Louise Erdrich, you can't really say anything bad about her. She's a great writer. And this book is so interesting because it's it's very much an environmental story. It's about things that happen when we're bad to the environment. Because I guess that's sort of a touch point for Erdrich. She's very close to nature and she has a good connection with the natural world. And this book is sort of like the bad things that can happen because we don't care about the earth. It's very good. It was one of my favorite books of the year. Yeah, I haven't read that. I'm a huge fan of Louise Erdrich in general, though. I recommend pretty much everything she's written. I'm sure this is great, too. It's really out of her usual comfort area. Mostly her books are about the Ojibwe. This is about the Ojibwe Nation. But this, it's sort of set, there's some magical elements or some kind of nod to the sort of cultural history, the storytelling of the tribe. This is more of a, it's, it's definitely a dystopic fiction. It's kind of like science fiction, very mild science fiction. It's very different from her usual stories, which are about families and cultural elements that are happening. This is more of an outward-facing story about society in general i think the thing like when you say most of her other stories are about family or families 
it goes deeper than that where most of our other stories are about a few very specific families for a very long time uh she has said that she has only written one very long book and i'm wondering like is this a break is this the point where she writes a new book or are there any sort of connections i think part of it takes place on the reservation and part of it takes place in this sort of modern futurist city that's kind of like the you know the the environment has disintegrated it caused this sort of chaotic um upstart in in the united states there's problems politically and religiously so it's sort of it takes parts that are not usually in her books and puts them together because there is that component of like life on the reservation the experience of being a native american and trying to weld into like the broader society the culture of the united states but i think if you really follow the threads of the families that are on the reservations you may find there's there's kind of there's the same there's the nod towards the sort of catholicism that affects the reservation and then there's some elements of sort of um like there's kind of component of like nana push and like the kind of like uh cultural significance on like you know the the women's culture like that kind of stuff is still in this novel but it's mostly about this sort of post-apocalyptic world and what's happening to the environment there's this component of like increased evolution and de-evolution that's affecting the animal so it's a lot of stuff going on in there sort of it's definitely her writing and it's definitely her style but it's set in an environment that is different from her previous books okay cool uh so yeah um another one number the next book on my list of the best books that i finished this year is a little weird it's something we haven't talked about i think ever on this show it's a play that i read which was arcadia by tom stoppard oh okay have you are you, are you familiar with this one yes I, i'm not familiar with this play but i am familiar with tom Stoppard. yeah so if you tom stoppard is the dude who wrote uh, rosencrantz and gildenstern are dead that's probably his most famous work um he's known for doing stuff that edges into the surreal and the existential this arcadia is a play that takes place entirely in one room but in two different time periods and it's a story about like the past and the present and the nature of like truth and scholarship and the way that past events are interpreted in the present day and by flipping back and forth between the past and present he's able to show sort of like the contrast between the way that events are eventually perceived and the way that events actually play out and like over time develops like by flipping back and forth and showing us what the characters in the present have learned and what's actually happening in the past he creates tries to create as complete a picture as possible about like what happened in this one specific house and this one specific time there's lots of interesting things where like there's a turtle that is present in both time periods. Oh, really? And there's a ca- a table in the center of the room that collects props through both time periods. So someone in the past puts something on it and that remains there when the characters in the present show up. And characters in the present will put things on the table that will remain there when it f- switches back to the past. And 
you know, there's some sort of like weird farcical elements. Like there's a, you know, uh, there's like a tutor. It's like set in this like English manner, and there's like a tutor who's an important central character, and he's having like an affair with the lady of the manor. And there's, you know, all of this like sort of upper crust comedy stuff going on. And then in the present, there's a woman who's like an archaeologist who's studying this, this house. And there's another academic there and they have kind of a contentious relationship with each other. And it's just like a very, I think it's a very interesting, very short little exploration of like the nature of time and knowledge and the limits of acquiring human knowledge in the face of how complex the world actually is. Are the two different times aware of each other, or is it just two separate times taking place in the same play? The the characters from the past and the present don't like ever interact. There's no fantastical element like okay. that. The characters in the present are aware of the past because they're aware of the past. The characters in the past are really not aware of the characters in the present at all. But they sort of just like, you know... They just sort of, the characters pass through the space. I think there are some points where characters from the past and characters from the present are on stage at the same time, but they're never, like, directly interacting with each other. Except in the way that we all interact with the past and the future as human beings living in a world with linear, seemingly linear time. Interesting. Also, it's very short. If you don't, like, if you're not super into reading plays, like, this one's not gonna bog you down. It's not an epic. It's, it's, I think it's only, like, two acts. So, yeah. Okay. So, one of my other choices, I don't usually read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I just prefer to read fiction. I have nothing against nonfiction. And I don't really, I mean, even though I love detective and mysteries, I don't read a lot of true crime either. But one of the books that I read this year that really stuck with me was I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McInerney which was published, she had um, passed away, and it was published posthumously in 2018. And it's the story of her research and her obsession with trying to uncover a serial killer, the Golden State Killer. And this book made a lot of news, mostly because of the story about her and her husband. Her husband is Patton Oswald. She passed away, and he worked hard to have the book finished and published it. And then the book became a success. It's very well written. She's a very, she was a very intriguing writer. She writes a lot about her process of trying to do research to find this serial killer. But it also talks a lot about her childhood growing up in, I think she grew up in the Midwest. And at some point she was exposed to a murder that happened when she was a child and how that impacted her point of view of looking at true crime and things like that. And then later on in the year, the research that she had crowdsourced and done as part of her podcast and writing this book actually led to evidence that uncovered one, that the Golden State Killer was a real serial killer and that he was actually, there were three series of crimes that were attributed to three different men which turned, she linked them all together and her research had in fact pinpointed who she thought the killer was. He turned out to actually be the serial killer. He turned out to be a serial rapist and a serial burglar. So she, her research that she had done actually led to the apprehension of the serial killer. 
But what I really liked about the book was it was sort of, it was a true crime story about essentially research, but it was written in a very personal, honest way, which made it a very interesting story. So even though I don't usually like that type of book, I read this book because I at first was intrigued by the story about how a woman who could spend years and years and years and also involve hundreds of people across the internet to help her go through the minutiae of information that the police didn't have time to look at to try to find a killer. I mean, at one point they talked about how they had actually purchased phone books from the periods of the time that the crimes were happening in California and all of these different people crowdsourced checking every single name and phone number in an entire um, phone book to try to weed out suspects because they had thousands of suspects. And it was sort of like the power of like the internet, the power of like cooperation and this sort of diligent research could end up solving a crime that all these because there were multiple police forces involved in the research and how the beginnings of forensic science and then the beginnings of DNA research had come together to help them find this killer. So. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a lot. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a very intense book, but it was very heartbreaking because as you were reading the book and you knew that Michelle McNamara had passed away before this... Um, story was resolved that while you're reading the book and the story is breaking the research the DNA research that she did is coming to fruition and they're actually tracking this killer sort of made this whole like phenomena of the book and then the cultural phenomena of actually catching this killer and then also kind of the sad heartbreaking part of like Pat and Oswald on social media talking about the case, his wife, ugh, it was just... How does the, like, do you think that the context of it being, like, it would have, it is a last work now, which yes. is an important and different thing from just any, any individual publication. Do you do you think that has a real profound effect on, like, the way that, like, you, the way that you interacted with this work? Like, knowing that this was her... Her final statement on Earth? I think that did, but I think it hit at exactly the right time. The book was published and the story about the crime was being sort of, people were being made aware of it. And then this hunt for this killer were all happening. And it sort of almost made like a multimedia experience of reading this book. It was also kind of sensitive because once you... When you knew about her story, about her actual life story and what had happened to her and her sort of way that she dealt with her her problems and, and the results of all of her compulsion, which led to the completion of this book, she was obsessed and did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours worth of research on one thing. I mean, there were, I mean, she talked about like, searching eBay, looking at cufflinks for hours and hours and hours while her family was sleeping because she could not let go of this idea that the killer took souvenirs from his victims and that since 30 odd years had passed, there was a chance that he got rid of these things. And it turned out that she was right. Mm -hmm. But her sort of obsession with finding out the truth because of what had happened in her childhood and her exposure to 
this sort of phenomena of her life being upset by this murder that happened near her house sort of it was kind of like it was very personal and I think that that's what made it seem like more like you could relate more to it because you knew that it was one person it was almost not like a sensational like you know the true story of the Manson murders like that kind of thing it wasn't like a true crime sensational story it was almost like a memoir and a true crime story. Yeah, I think it's we when we talked about uh, Chronicle of a Death Foretold, we touched a little bit on this sort of current uh, movement of um, true crime stories, which are all very much these like they're serialized. There's podcasts, there's Netflix original series. I think it's interesting to see something that is this like complete as much as you you touched on the sort of multimedia aspect of the actual investigation and the comments of her husband and whatnot and and even her own podcast that she did but like th- this book is very much like it's a single definitive exploration contained in one unit and which is very much at odds with the sort of overwhelming um attitude towards this towards the presentation of this kind of like narrative and information now well i feel like it's sad because she is such a she was such a great writer and if she would have gotten the help that she needed or she i mean if things would have went out differently for her i could have seen her having this long and sort of career where she wrote these kinds of books and she did these kinds of podcasts and I think she would have she would have contributed a lot I think and that's what's sad about it it's almost like it's like John Kennedy O'Toole it's kind of like you read this book it's so well written you realize that she's a fantastic writer and that you're sad because you know that her life was cut short and she could not write any more books and this is like you said this is just one piece of work that's all you have but I think it's a really interesting, well-written story um, about the killer, about the research, about her life, about her compulsion to do this kind of really excessive research. I mean, it's just really, it all comes together to make an interesting story. It reads like a novel, but mm. it's a true crime. Is it like, are there like, you know... uh in cold blood sort of vibes. Yeah, exactly. I got that a lot, but you know what? I feel like, like in cold blood is just this, I mean, Truman Capote, like he does insert himself in this, in Mm -hmm. this story. She does the same thing, but Truman Capote inserts himself into the story as it's unfolding. Okay. And she inserts her story herself into the story as the research, the uncovering, the solving of the mystery happens. Which is interesting. It gives it, if you're a detective literature fan, you'll find this interesting. All right, let's change gears completely. As I, again, as is a constant and eternal theme and sub theme on this podcast, break the rules to talk about three books at once. (laughs) I want to talk about three short, sorry. I want to talk about three short story collections that I read. And I wanted to combine these because one of these we've already done a fair amount of discussion on, which is uh, Ficciones by Jorge Luis Borges. I said his name right this time. We talked about, uh, what is the, Talon Ukbar Orbis Tertius before, but I read that the whole rest of that collection this year, 
and I um, had read a few of his things before here and there. Some of the stories in this collection I had already read, but actually sitting down and reading one story after the other, I think really sort of filled in my perception of him as a writer and like whoever, however this particular collection was compiled. I know it's like one of the most famous collections of his works. It ends up sort of coming together almost as a single unit because so much of the stories in this explore these themes that he was clearly very fixated on about like fiction and storytelling and like the reality and weight of stories and the way the stories affect the real world. And anybody that listens to this podcast knows that I also share a sort of a fixation on those themes. A lot of the stories I bring to the table and a lot of my interpretations of stories are, are viewed through that kind of metafictional lens. And like, it was just very interesting to see how many, like a lot of the short stories in that collection are reviews or essays about non-existent works uh-huh. that the works only exist in the context of this review of them you that's the review is all you have which is like an interesting little i keep saying interesting i which is very lazy but it's a it's this technique where it's like it, it's almost hyper efficient where it's like if we concede that the author is dead and all that is important of a work is it's your interpretation and reaction to it, then why not just create interpretations and reactions without ever actually creating the work itself? Interesting. And there's, you know, there's like a uh, a review of a dude's translation of Don Quixote. There's a review of this mystery novel that moves into becoming this sort of like existential fable. Uh, yeah, they're all they're all really good. It's a, I think it's a, it's a weird read to read all at once because so much of it is like so meta and minds like bending. But I think taking it all as one complete unit is a different experience than just reading them in isolation as individual short stories here and there. And it, I think it adds a lot to it. The second short story collection I want to talk about is Civil War Lane and Bad Decline by George Saunders. Um, I also read that this year. Oh, cool. I hadn't, was this the first time you read it? Uh, I think so, yes. I had only, all I had really experienced of his stuff was you telling me about his works over and over again. And then I read the Semplica Girls, which right. is, I believe in, it's in a different, it's not in this collection. But I read that short story in isolation. That's and from this, the 12th of December. Okay. And this one, it's another thing where it's like these particular collections, these particular stories all collected together paint a picture of George Saunders and of the things he's fixated on. So many of these stories are about, like, unreal spaces and engineered spaces. There's a lot of stories about amusement parks in this. The titular uh, story, Civil Warland and Bad Decline, is about a Civil War historical-themed amusement park and this sort of middle manager guy who works there. A lot of them are about, like, the precariousness of the middle class. Saunders is very fixated on this thing we talked about when we talked about the dungeon master right that was the first story we talked about for this version of the podcast right right so we talked about the dungeon master we talked about this version of the middle class that's like precarious where you're at any moment things could go terribly wrong and you could wind up poor and in a spiral of incredible debt and 
I don't know if that's the background that Saunders came from, but it's definitely something that he's very fixated on. All of his characters, for the most part, like, have jobs and homes and families, and they're all in constant danger of all of those things going away at the drop of a hat. And some of the stories are about the process by which those things do go away, and some of them are just about dealing with the constant fear that they will go away. Or in the case of something like the 400-pound CEO, freeing yourself from the fear of those things and embracing the void in a way. Yeah, I I mean, I like George Saunders. And in fact, one of the things that I was debating about, one of the, I was going to list some of my favorite audio books of the year. And one of them was Lincoln in the Bardo, which is his first full-length novel. He usually writes novellas or short stories. And it's read by a cast of sort of all these famous people, but the most, the majority of the story is read by Nick Offerman, which I think is very interesting. It's a very well done audio book. So if you really want to ease yourself into George Saunders, you might want to start with that. Listen to the audio book. It's very entertaining. Is that, if you had to give a shout out to one audio book that you experienced this year, would that be the one? I think I would put that, that one down shout? as one of the best that I had listened to. My favorite types of audiobooks are ones that are read by the authors. So sometimes I'll just go back, like Neil Gaiman does a lot of his own audiobooks. So sometimes I'll go back and listen to a short story collect, collection by Neil Gaiman where he reads it himself. I think I mentioned that it's almost like Neil Gaiman's reading you a story, which makes you very happy because he has a really great voice. But what's the third one? The third one is the weirdest one. It's the one that, like, I... It's probably the worst. Like, I... When I recorded all the books I finished this year, I gave them all a rating out of ten. And this is the only book that I'm talking about in this section, besides the one that I... Death in Venice, which I gave a four. This is the only one that has a rating lower than eight. This has a seven. And it is this book called Callahan's Cross-Time Saloon. By Spider Robinson. Yeah, I remember you talking about this. It's a very strange book. So the premise of Callahan's Cross Time Saloon is that all of the stories take place in this same bar in New England uh, called Callahan. I don't think the I don't know if the bar is called Callahan's Place or that's just what everyone calls it. But they're um, they're science fiction stories, but they're science fiction stories that are nestled in a very mundane setting in this sort of working class bar in the New England area where Spider Robinson lived. And the the first story is the one that kind of sets the thesis statement for the whole book. The first story is called The Guy with the Eyes. And it's in a mold of a kind of story that I think everybody's seen a million times, which is it's the sort of um, Silver Surfer, The Day the Earth Stood Still kind of story where an, a powerful alien being comes to judge us and is turned to our side by experiencing uh, what humanity has to offer. But the twist of the guy with the eyes is that it's not like love or whatever. Like he doesn't like fall in love with a human or like see people working heroically. The thing that turns the alien around on humanity is a just a particularly empathic collection of good-spirited barflies. And I, I think... I was going to say, was it beer? No, it's not even really the beer. It's just the patrons of Callahan's. They're, they're very... There's a lot of problems. They're, you know, science fiction stories from the 70s and 80s. 
but at its core, what I think is re- really compelling about them is th- they're all stories about like friendship and community and empathy and the value of all of those things. Like it's it's very sincere in its portrayal of like Callahan's is this great place where everyone is nice to each other and they have to work hard to maintain that atmosphere. But like it's an interesting take on the idea that like empathy and compassion can save us and but viewed through this like very like specific and grounded lens that I I think is something that I wish I saw a little bit more. Is it like a a Sherazad plot where they have to tell the stories to the alien to save them from being destroyed? Or he just observes these people? He, so in The Guy with the Eyes, what happens is a kid comes in. Callahan's has this thing where you can basically get a free drink by doing a toast and like telling your story to the patrons. And so it's a place that's set up where the whole point is that people listen to each other. And so what happens on the guy with the eyes is he watches a the bar rally around and help this kid who's struggling with drug addiction, who basically comes and does like a confession to the bar. And watching, they don't know that he is an alien whose job is to destroy humanity, but watching these just seemingly random dudes, you know, express this incredible amount of compassion and love for this person that they don't really have any obligation to is what compels them to save them. But a lot of the stories are structured around people telling stories to each other about different things. There's a whole one about how they have these like nights where they tell these pun stories, like these long stories that lead to a dumb pun. But there's, you know, there's this, the guy with the eyes, which is about this, alien who is works for these other aliens and is supposed to destroy the earth there's a story about a guy who has psychic powers like telepathy and it's like tearing him apart because he's constantly hearing everybody's voice and he watched this same power destroy his brother and we see the bar patrons come together to help him there's like a little goofy story about a guy who has like luck powers and is using them to cheat at darts it's it's just like a lot of like it's a lot of science fiction stories, but scaled down so that they take place in this one particular bar. And even when the stakes are higher than the bar, this action never leaves it for the most part. And when it does, it's through people telling stories about stuff that took place outside of the bar. Interesting. I'm, that's, it, that's all I got to say. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I was waiting for more. I mean, okay. um, one of the books that I picked is. Uh, this book called The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin, and it was published in 2018. It's the second novel by Benjamin, and it's essentially a story about four siblings. So these siblings grow up in the 70s, and for some reason they go to a fortune teller who tells each one of them what happens in their lives. So once they have this information about how they're going to live their lives and how they're going to die, all four of the siblings go off to live their lives free of this sort, free or encumbered by the information that they were given. And it tells the story of all four of the siblings and what happens to them. One of the uh, 
one of the siblings, the brother, he he's a gay character and he goes to San Francisco in the late seventies, early eighties, and he gets sort of caught in this sort of um gay culture in San Francisco and he ends up contracting AIDS and he's one of the earlier so that so it tells like these sort of four stories. Some of them are heartwarming, some of them are sad. Some of them are angry. So it sort of tells the story of all four of these siblings and how they deal with the information where they are already starting out their life. They, they find out when they're children what's going to happen to them and how it affects their lives. And it's sort of like a family saga, but it has like magical realism elements. So I thought that was really interesting. I liked it a lot because... I have multiple siblings, so it's kind of, I can connect sort of with stories that are like that. It almost had like an Alice Hoffman kind of um, feel to it, you know, about these children. Does anybody get attacked on the beach? No. Oh, okay. No one gets hit with a, a club, so that was fine. Mm. So, But it's sort of like, it takes this premise about how would you live your life if you did not have to worry about what was going to happen to you. So some of the siblings take that as like, a freedom to like embrace their creativity, their free spiritness. Some of them take it as sort of an obligation where they have to deal with the events of their lives and dealing with their family restrictions and their obligations. So it's interesting. It was sort of like, it was heartbreaking because there was a lot of sad parts and very uncomfortable discussions about like the roles of siblings in each person's life but it was interesting it was well written so it's one of those books where it's at some point it's going to be made into either a movie or a mini series yeah that sounds pretty good it was interesting that's all i have to say about that i think it's interesting we talked about this before a little bit when we were talking about uh chronicle of the death foretold but i, I wonder what it is about magical realism and stories about families like the big the big one the most famous magical realist story probably of all time is a hundred years of solitude which is like you know it's a book that has a family tree in the beginning of it like i i don't know i don't know what it is i genuinely couldn't tell you but i i think there's something interesting about the way that a lot of stories with magical realist elements end up exploring like familial relationships I mean, that's something that we we could think about a lot more. I'm sure we could find hundreds of books that fit that. But I think magical realism is a defense mechanism almost. And it works in families because when you have multiple siblings and things are happening, there's often a lot of defense mechanisms that are developed to deal with like in being in a family structure. So maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, I, I think that there's something to that. And in a way, like, it was almost what we were talking about before with, like, oh, scenes and generations and stuff are these shared myths we tell each other. In a way, family is kind of also a shared myth and a, and a fable that we tell each other. Like, in reality, there is no actual reason that you have to stick around your family if you're not complete, you're not, like, financially dependent on them. But we tell ourselves the story of family over and over again, and magical realist stories often deal with, like, the ideas of stories and fables. So I could see those two themes intertwining. I think this, what spoke to me most about this book and, and having multiple siblings, I deal with this 
myself is that the way that you remember things mm-hmm. and the sort of family mythology that you create around the stories that you remember may have different meanings to different siblings. Yeah, I think so, in a way you can sometimes forget that they're different people who have a completely different mind than you. And, and in a way, like, everyone, everybody is living in their own alternate timeline where they're the most important person in the world. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's that's sort of what this book is about. Each character, each sibling is the star of their own story, but they're also a minor character in another person's story. So they're sort of woven together in this very complicated way. So, I mean, I think that's kind of like, it's almost like having four stories that have to be melded together, which I think is interesting. She does a very good job of writing about different points of views, different types of characters. What was the name of this one again? I'm sorry. The Immortalists by Ooh. Chloe Benjamin. Gotcha. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's change gears again. And we'll, let's talk about a story that's kind of about uh, loneliness and alienation and the loss of family. Uh, the My penultimate book in this episode, our favorite word. Of course, my favorite word. Is uh, Pattern Recognition by William Gibson. Oh, okay. He's kind of the patron saint of this podcast. Yes. In a way. <laughs> so Pattern Recognition is a book he wrote, is from 2003. It is the start of the of Gibson's third trilogy. So you have the Sprawl trilogy, which he started in the 80s with um, Neuromancer. And then in the 90s, there's the Bridge trilogy, which starts with Virtual Light. And... In the early 2000s, there is... I don't know if there's like an official name for it. It sometimes gets called the Blue Ant Trilogy. That starts with this book, Pattern Recognition. It's not really a science fiction story, I think, for the most part. It's, again, like a story that has a science fiction writer's eye. It's a story with an eye to the future. It's about the internet and information and advertising, but really nothing that happens in Pattern Recognition couldn't have happened in 2003 it's also very much gibson's post 9-11 story i mean like literally in that a big part of the protagonist's deal is that her father disappeared on 9-11 he seemingly was not in the attacks but he just disappeared into the ether and no one has seen him since then the book is about this woman named case pollard who's in her early 30s and she has a psychosomatic allergy to brands. Brands. To brands, like like corporate branding. Okay. And then she thus is used as a marketing consultant by advertising firms with the idea that if they show her potential branding and she has a reaction to it, that means it's probably good enough to use and will stick in people's brains. And if she doesn't have a reaction to it, then there's really nothing to it. There's a lot... About how she has this incredible, irrational fear of the Michelin Man. Oh. And that, like, at one point a character uses that against her. It's kind of a techno thriller, maybe. So the actual plot of the story is that Case Pollard is brought in to consult for this mysterious advertising and other things firm called Blue Ant. Which is run by this ambitious and uh, rich dude named Hubertus Big End. And... It turns out to be a cover to hire her to hunt down this mysterious filmmaker who's been uploading this 
film in pieces to the internet for a while. And this whole community is all around, like, interpreting and ordering these stories and tracking down this filmmaker and trying to figure out if the film is even live action or not is, like, a part of it. Like, they're just these these isolated fragments, and it's unclear if they're telling a story or if they're, like, a tone poem or if they're even connected or not. And so she begins to look for this person and there are clearly like other forces at work, other people who are interested in the information and interested in her. And it becomes this story about paranoia, about surveillance, about, uh, you know, a post nine 11 world. And, uh, it's, I think maybe my favorite thing he's ever written. Like, I think this is better than neuromancer. I mean, uh, as as influential and like iconic as Neuromancer is, I don't think it it never really spe- spoke to me in the way that this does. I think the beauty of Neuromancer is that it fits generationally. Mm-hmm. So I think to, for someone more my age, it's more culturally relevant. And I think that one thing that William Gibson does is he remains since he's so focused mostly on the technology and people's impact and fear of technology i think he sort of he hits it in a sophisticated way not like in a dan brown kind of way where it's just kind of like oh now we're gen xers and now we're afraid of technology he kind of he keeps it relevant and he his commentary is always fresh about technology why she brought in specifically to solve this mystery what what well, she's already a huge part of that community. Okay. She's already looking for the the um, the filmmaker when she's brought in. Because the idea is like this, this, um, the, the film, the work, I think is what they call it, has become such a phenomenon and it's come like out of nowhere. It's like captured the so many people's imaginations and this dude who's like, you know, into advertising and manipulating the public wants to have control over this person or wants some insight into how they do the thing that they're doing. And so he sends Case after her, and then Case has her own reasons for wanting to track this person down. Also, there's a lot of stuff about clothes. This of is course. like... Isn't so, that his thing? Yeah, so it's, people may or may not know that William Gibson has a relationship with a Japanese clothing label called Buzz Rickson, which does these like hyper-accurate recreations of vintage clothing specifically from like you know specifically like american work and military wear from around the time of world war ii and i believe that that collaboration exists entirely because of this book where buzz rickson is name dropped several times and case has a buzz rickson jacket that she like, it gets destroyed at some point. A character damages it as a way to get back at her. She gets a new one. Like, the, the Buzz Rickson jacket becomes, like, an important symbol for and of her. And is mentioned several times throughout the, the novel. And uh, I like clothes. And I care a lot about what characters wear. And, like, I think this... I This was the second time I had read this. I read this uh, first when I was, like, in my freshman year of high school, I think. And it ended up being a pretty big influence on me. Uh, it's also sort of like, 
sometimes this gets termed a postmodern detective story. It gets grouped in a lot with The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon, which mm-hmm. has like similar themes of like paranoia and unreality and like the feeling of being watched and surveilled and not quite knowing your place in a conspiracy that may or may not exist. So yeah, if you if you want to get paranoid and and flash back to some post 9/11 vibes, I highly recommend Paranoid Recognition. The other books in the in this trilogy are also really good. Also, pretty much all of William Gibson stuff is good. Read I William Gibson. Yeah, I'm all for that. Follow him on Twitter. He's pretty good. Yeah, he's very a little political though. He's very political, but he's like maybe not as he's not as a communist as I as I want him to be. <laughs> like as my impression of him was as like a teenager reading the Communist Manifesto and Pattern Recognition. Well, my choice is just a really fun book that I read that I really enjoyed. It hit every thing that I like about in a novel. Um, I read Macbeth by Yonespo. He's a um, he's from Oslo. He's a crime writer. He writes one of my favorite crime series, um, which I just blanked on. Uh, I don't know the name either. Uh, listeners might know him from the disastrous Snowman movie that was based right. on right. one of his works. Uh, that oh, it's that, not his fault that that movie was a disaster. It was wrought with production his, issues. Yeah, his detective is Harry Hule, who is a former police officer who is now a private detective. And he writes these sort of really gruesome, gritty, noir type of crime novels that are set in... It's sort of... The pinnacle of like Scandinavian crime fiction. He's very well known for that. This book is his retelling of Shakespeare's Macbeth. That's part of the Hogarth series. And he reimagines Macbeth as a police officer, which I find to be very interesting. And it takes place in Scotland and Macbeth is a police detective and there's this crime, there's this gang of drug dealers are selling the Hecatate, they're selling these designer drugs that are almost like ecstasy that they're creating, and Macbeth gets caught up in that sort of gritty crime world, and he's sort of walking the line between good and evil, and Lady Macbeth owns a casino, and part of the story takes place in the casino. But I thought it was interesting because it's sort of like, it's 100% a crime story and it's almost like historical fiction in that the characters from Macbeth are placed in this modern society and they're reimagined as this sort of good and bad, very clearly police and drug dealers and then things come together. But I think it's interesting because all of the characters from Shakespeare are in this and it's very contemporary, it's very modern, and it's written in UNESCO style, which is very hard-edged and gritty and dirty. And it kind of, um, it plays less dealing with Macbeth's, like, mental state and more of his, like, just outward ambition to be sort of the police commissioner and everything like that. So it was very interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you were saying, like, oh, it, it puts them into these roles of, like, good and evil police and gangster but I think by making Macbeth a police officer, it kind of, I don't know, intentionally or otherwise, paints a more, and will end up painting a more gray picture of the police because Macbeth is not the good guy. 
Well, no. In Macbeth, he's he's a very like morally ambiguous character. I think there's honestly a way to read Macbeth where he is just he's a villain. He's a villainous figure. Um, yeah, and I think the whole thing it's like his sort of mindset is like let's stop making Macbeth into a tragic figure and let's make him responsible for the choices that he makes. And I think it's interesting because the witches are, um, they're chemists and they're creating this drug and it's being sold in the town, you know, in the, in Scotland and it's sort of destroying this post-industrial town where in the past it was known for, um, mining, industrial, they had a railroad, they had, and a lot of the town is now depressed and most of the economy comes from the casinos and the drug dealing and this sort of in and out transportation hub of drug dealing, which I think is very interesting. I like the idea of like Macbeth being like, you know, wearing a leather jacket and just kicking butt all the time. I think that's pretty great. Instead of him being sad and mopey and wondering why all these terrible things are happening to him when he was told that he was going to be the prince and everything like that. So there's lots of like, um, political intrigue there's lots of scheming there's lots of murdering and gunfights and it's just sort of like an action-packed Macbeth it's a very fun sort of like diversionary read yeah I I think there's definitely a value to be had in acknowledging that like Shakespeare was like he was a middle brow sort of writer like this his stuff was in a way kind of like blockbuster movies or or like pulp fiction like you know i i think when people compare shakespeare and hitchcock that's like the right idea like they're very similar characters and i think like pruning away some of the like preciousness that has accumulated around his works over time is like a worthwhile concept and i think like yeah, a crime thriller is a pretty, um, pretty is like very much equivalent to the kind of thing that like maintains a similar cultural space now that Shakespeare's plays probably would have then. Yeah, I think so, and I think this like we talked about this series where this Hogarth Press had asked um, famous current novelists to reimagine Shakespeare's plays. So I think it's interesting to say. We want a crime novelist. We want a detective story writer to write the story of Macbeth. Because, I mean, some of this stuff kind of, like, makes a lot of sense. Like, Tracy Chevalier was asked to retell Othello. And Margaret Atwood retold The Tempest. So I think, That one makes a lot of sense. I mean, so I think that it's kind of like saying, okay, like, what what would a crime novelist see that's different from what Shakespeare saw? And I think that this sort of encompasses it. But to quickly go back to Harry Hole, his series that he writes, and about the snowman and the disappointing movie, he comes up with the most macabre, yet most creative killers and, and in his stories. He, you know, there's one where they have this medieval torture device and he's a serial killer. And then they have this one where he's a, you know, He's a vampire, but he has a set of, like, steel teeth. I mean, he comes up with these sort of really gruesome ways to kill people. And then the stories are very interesting. So he's much more edgy. The stories that in the series are much more edgy and better written than 
you would be led to believe from this movie. Well, the movie is missing a huge chunk yes. of it. They just yes. didn't get to finish filming the movie. That book, The Snowman, I read that. And I think I talked about this. I read that right at the time when you had gone away to school. You were living on campus and Charlie <laughs> was working nights. Charlie's so I, my stepdad for people that don't. Right. He's my husband. So, which we call the boss, if that ever comes up. Mm -hmm. So, I read that. I was reading it at night. And it has this really terrifying element that the killer, the serial killer, they're often serial killers. He has an electric garage. Oh, I remember you telling me about this. And it is just the concept of this sizzling electric garage that he's chopping people's heads off terrified me when I was reading this book, Home Alone, by myself. And it it's was, like a thing for cattle, right? Yes, yes. It's used to like when when a calf is breached and it's dead. It's used to dissect the calf in womb to bring it out, and he uses it as a murder weapon. There's definitely like something to the idea of like having a killer use on people a tool for the slaughter or destruction of animals. Like that's a thing they get at in No Country for Old Men with Anton Chigurh. Mm. And his, like, python thing that he uses, his, like, pneumatic gun that he uses to kill people. Because that, that is a tool for putting down animals. And it, like, that's a very slick and, like, like uh, direct way to be like, this guy does not view people as people. But I think also Hole as a detective is very interesting because he is... Like, especially for Gen Xers, he is a super cool detective. You know, he he wears his Doc Martens and his leather jacket. He's kicking down doors. He's listening to Lou Reed. He's got his, like, Joy Division t-shirt on. He's fighting crime. And every time that every book, at the end of every book, he is damaged in some way. So by the time you get to the, I think it's the 12th book in the series, he's got a metal finger. His face is scarred. He has all these different major catastrophes happen to him as he's solving all of these crimes. So he's really like a flawed, super edgy kind of Sherlock Holmes. Like, you know, he is the flawed detective and he's a really great character. Yeah, it's always it was surprising to me that it was Michael Fassbender that plays him in the movie, yeah. right? I'm surprised it was him and not Woody Harrelson. Yeah. It seems like he was like, for me, whenever I imagine that sort of like ex-punk Gen Xer, I always just imagine Woody Harrelson for some reason. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I, I want my detective to bust down the door with his Doc Martens when he's blasting Lou Reed in his, you know, in his iPod. Because he always has sort of outdated technology and stuff, so. I know this is not something that you're terribly familiar with, but I was thinking about it when you were talking about how sort of dark and intense and gritty his writing is. I, do you see him as sort of coming out of the same cultural wave as like black metal? I think so. There's a there's a lot of components that are very. It's extremely more edgy than if you think that like Scandinavian crime fiction is like Stieg Larsson. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a whole genre of like really really edgy, really hardcore, really graphic, really sort of intense. Scandinavian crime fiction and he's sort of the the best known for that. I don't know if it's because they have a low crime rate in that kind of in that area or that, you know, that they spend so much time in the winter that they have these sort of vivid black imaginations, but they really I mean they're really hardcore. 
I mean, yeah. they're, they're not like, you know, Agatha Christie. They, they're intense. But I really like that series a lot. It's very well written. He's very sort of, he's very edgy. But I think the interesting thing about him is he writes this really dark, graphic, intense crime novels. And then he also writes children's books. Wait, he does? Yeah, he has a series that's almost like Captain Underpants. What? That's like for middle schoolers. I was not aware of this. Yeah, so, and he started out as like an economist. So he's kind of like he... He's just a really interesting writer and a really interesting person. So, but what I'm saying is that I read Macbeth and I like that a lot. But if you were turned off by the snowman and you thought maybe you wouldn't like these books, go back and read those books because the series is 100% better than that. I mean, I was sad when I saw that movie. I wanted that movie to be great because I love the series so much. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so the, this is the last one, right? Yeah. Right now? So the best book that I read this year is... Uh, dun, dun, dun. It's Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Oh, of course. It's a huge uh, bummer. This was the book that made me... I, I liked it so much that after reading it, I got tricked into reading Death in Venice. Uh, for those who don't know, Giovanni's Room is a book about a American and the lost generation in Paris um, who... Has a relationship with this, who you know, has a, a sexual and romantic relationship with this guy named Giovanni, who's like a bartender, um, living in Paris at the time. And when the book starts, we know that Giovanni has been arrested and is headed for the gallows, and it kind of goes back through and explores like the beginnings of his relationship with Giovanni and the way they self destruct. It's a a very sad and intense story about self-loathing and internalized homophobia and cowardice and like the entropy that consumes our relationships with people and it's just like a, a very sad and intense and heartbreaking story that i think um for a lot of people will probably hit maybe a little too close to home but uh it, re it really worked for me I think it's also, we've talked before, I think, about, like, the unlikable protagonist. Right. And I think, like, there's a, a level of, like, this is maybe my favorite instance of that. The, the the narrator of Giovanni's room is a sack of shit. He sucks. He, he's, at every turn, disappointing. And there's, a like, a, a brutal honesty about him. He feels incredibly real. In a way that can almost become uncomfortable if you see, you know, a lot of your own weaknesses in him. But the book never, like, James Baldwin never romanticizes him. He portrays him as being supremely ugly, but is still, like, a, a person. Like, you still understand why Giovanni would, you know, fall in love with him. Why other people would want to be around this guy. But you also see him for, for all of his awfulness and the way that he treats people and thinks about them and, and even thinks about himself. And it's just like James Baldwin is an amazing writer. It's it's beautifully written. Like every sentence is amazing. Like it's a deeply moving work. But you just have to be willing to to put up with some again some intense themes and and just like some some real bleakness. I think it's one of those stories that I think like. I mean, even though it specifically connects to the homosexual community, 
the gay community. I think it's a book almost like Native Son, where I think a lot of people should read it and benefit from it because I think it's well written. It's interesting. It tells a story. It helps people to understand the movement at the time, the lost generation, the sort of expat kind of disenfranchised. We talked about that with Catherine Valente. But this sort of isolation that Baldwin felt as an African-American, as a man, as a gay man, as an American, and the kind of experience that he had. I think it's interesting because when people think about the expats, they think about Ernest Hemingway. And this is a completely different point of view of what was happening at the same time. And I think that's really interesting. It's like I was saying, there's no sort of romanticization of this of this period of the lost generation like for the most part they're portrayed as being pretty pretty selfish in what they're doing but like you know he also doesn't shy away from again like portraying like there is something appealing like when they're all together and they're drinking and it's like you kind of want to be there and then once the protagonist is alone and alone with himself there's nothing in the world you want less than to be that guy and to be where he is i think when i think about james ball when i think about He's a contemporary writer. His name is James McBride. And he won a 2013 National Book Award for his book, The Good Lord Bird. And he he is clearly inspired by James Baldwin. And he writes about the African-American experience in society now. And it's an interesting just the position of both of their point of views. So I think that like James Baldwin has this legacy. He has this path of influence that's really not examined a lot. I think he's a very influential American writer that doesn't get the sort of acknowledgement that he deserves. I think when people think about him, they think about Giovanni's room and say, okay, he's a gay writer. He writes about this. He writes about that. But there's so much more. He's talking more about society in general and the cultural experience as Americans at the time period that really isn't acknowledged because people always think about, you know, Ernest Hemingway and how he felt, you know, so I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I think there's also like, there's a real examination of like colonialism and privilege in this. The protagonist is a white man and he, he enters into this community in Paris and then just as easily leaves it. Like he, he is free. His, he is free because of his privilege, he is free from consequences in a way that the other characters, like Giovanni, who ends up dying, aren't. And there's, like, a portrayal of... I, You know, Baldwin explores how that is, like... Someone with that kind of privilege is destructive to the community around them, but there he also explores the way that it becomes alienating and isolating. If you retreat into your privilege, you become unconnected from everyone. You know, it's the same kind of way that people talk about, like you know in a way the dominant culture kind of gives up their right to have a culture in order to be dominant and in order to be free from consequence the protagonist has to give up his connections to everyone and everything essentially interesting i could see that why why that would be a number one choice yeah i mean that's the other thing like i mean you know i uh i'm a queer man and i have struggled with self-loathing and like i don't have as much like you know, because of the time period that I live and grew up in, I don't have as much, like, internalized, like, homophobia as the narrator. But, like, there are some, like, some of the times when he's, like, looking in the mirror and is disgusted with himself, like, 
that felt very real to me. And like, I think for some people it can be sort of painful to relive those things, but it's, it's nice sometimes to be like, oh yeah, other people have always felt like this. Like you're not alone entirely in, in feeling like you're a sack of shit. Oh. I know, but I'm not, I don't, I, I'm fine. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes you feel bad. And it's good to know that sometimes other people also feel bad. I think we could do a whole podcast on James Baldwin and probably still have much more to say about him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Don't read Death in Venice, do read Giovanni's Room. But maybe, but like, if you're not prepared to be utterly destroyed, maybe don't read Giovanni's Room. Yeah, yeah. I think you have to be of the mindset to, to unpack that. So my last choice is not necessarily my favorite book, but it's just number five in the list, which I think we talked a lot about, which was The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro. Yes. And it's not the novelization of the movie, but it's a novel that's a companion to the movie. I know I talked about that for a whole podcast, but I really thought that it was one of the best reads I had this year. Yeah, we, we, had, we had a pretty lengthy discussion about it. And uh, I have not read the book, but the movie is fantastic. And I think, again, like, it deals a lot with these in a much more positive way it deals a lot with these themes of like isolation and self-loathing but it prevents like a path out an idea that you can sort of construct a community and a family and a shared narrative even if it is about a fish man as a way to sort of escape or at least deal with like the shittiness of the world around you oh definitely definitely it's just a well-written book i think we talked about that with his co-author he picks the appropriate co-author for the work that he's working on and that's really good. I also read another really good book, which I'm just sort of putting in as a bonus. Um, it was called Less by Andrew Sean Greer. It was the Pulitzer Prize winner for 2018. And it was a very interesting story about a writer who um, who decides to hide from his like imploding personal life by going on this tour, this literary tour, to promote a book that he wrote. So I think it's kind of, it's almost like a picaresque story. But um, Greer is also a gay writer. He writes about, um, he has really strong gay characters in his novels. And he's very sensitive about writing about the experiences of himself and people in the culture, which I think is nice. Um, he interestingly wrote another book that I really enjoyed. I read a couple of years ago, The Story of a Marriage, about um, a family in San Francisco which was also very good. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah. Just a quick shout-out to some honorable mentions uh, that I have talked about on the podcast before. Binti's real good. Every Hearted Doorway is real good. Kraken is really good. Some good leftist urban fantasy, if you're interested in that. Check all those out. Don't read Death in Venice. (laughs) So, next up, our next episode is going to be a Sandman episode. Yes, it's going to be volume six? six. Yes, volume six, Fables and Reflections. Yes, this is another uh, like. Um, dang it! What was it called? The one before Season of Mists. A Game of You. No, a Game of You is the one that after it. Dun, dun, dun. Oh man, this is another collection of uh, um, one-off stories. Oh, these one-offs. Yeah, this is. These are. Um, some of these come from before, like, in the actual issue order, come from before A Game of You. Some of them, I think, are from afterwards. Oh, is this when they 
some of the early volumes break it up differently. Is this where the weird ones ended up that didn't fit? Yeah, they. So I think the thing was there are like two issues of one-off stories between Season of Mist and A Game of You, and rather than having the A Game of You contain two unrelated okay. issues, they just kind of scoop them out and put them later so that. You know, that could just be all the issues of that one story and it wouldn't be, like, overly long, I believe is the idea of that. So, Dream Country. Dream Country is the one that was, that's the one that's got the cat and Midsummer's Night's Dream. This is another um, collection of one-off stories. I We've referenced a couple of them before, the Ramadan stories in this. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, the writing is by Neil Gaiman and there's a bunch of artists on this one. Um... Kent Williams, Sean McManus, Stan Walk, Duncan Eagleson, Brian Talbot, John Watkiss, Jill Thompson, uh, and P. Craig Russell, who I have before in the podcast recommended his uh, Elric comics. Okay. That should be fun. Yeah, that'll be good. It's another long one. I think there's like a bunch of issues. Anyway. But yeah, we'll we'll touch on the Orpheus thing. I think that's in this one. Ooh, good. So that'll that'll be good. That'll be fun. Uh, Yeah. So that's uh that was twenty eighteen. Um it kinda kind of sucked the year. Doing the podcast Not was our fun. Podcast. Our podcast was great and this was a, I think a good episode of the podcast. But twenty eighteen as a whole, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> if we were listing our top five favorite years of the year, it wouldn't it would not it wouldn't be made a cut. Oh well. Now two thousand three. <laughs> All right. Uh spoiler, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.